Hi, everyone. Welcome to the From the Hack podcast from an unexpectedly busy week 14 of the 2018-2019 curling season. This week, Scott Howard joins us but a few days after stepping in for his dad and winning his first World Curling Tour title as a skip in Halifax. Robin Silvernagel, whose team won the Red Deer Classic, an event that received a lot of attention on the weekend, joins us to discuss her team's big win and how they handled all that was going on at the club in Red Deer on their way to the championship. John Morris joins us to discuss a few different topics, including his win at the Canadiens Mixed Doubles Classic on the weekend. And speaking of the Canadiens Mixed Doubles Classic, we're happy to welcome Kadriana Sahaduk, a first-time guest on the podcast, who lost in the final to the team of John Morris and Caitlin Lawson Portage, and who first came to the attention of the Canadian curling community by reaching the final of the Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship last spring with her partner Colton Lott. Also this week, Jerry Gertz of the World Curling Tour joins us to discuss the launch of the World Curling Tour's Japanese division. And we have a special feature with Don Landry, who many of you know for his curling coverage, but he also covers the Canadian Football League. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the US, well the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Asham's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Asham Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Asham's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for Broom's apparel and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks recap of week 14 of the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit us at www.curlingzone.com. So let's start this week's recap by addressing the elephant in the room right from the outset. As many of you will know by now, the Red Deer Classic was held on the weekend. Both the men's and women's events included three teams ranked in the top 25 in the world, with Team Botcher headlining the men's event and Team Scheidegger headlining the women's event. Unfortunately, the Red Deer Classic made international sports headlines for all the wrong reasons when Team Jamie Cooey, consisting of team regulars Jamie Cooey and Chris Schilly, along with two substitute players for the weekend, DJ Kidby and Ryan Fry, were disqualified for unruly behavior and for damaging property. 
According to multiple reports, damage was done to the locker room at the club and multiple brooms were broken on the ice. It was an unfortunate incident and the players involved seemed to regret it once they sobered up as they've all offered apologies to the club, the other teams, event sponsors and spectators. The player who's gotten much of the attention as a result of the incident is Ryan Fry. And just as this podcast was to be posted, Ryan Fry announced that he is taking a leave of absence from Team Jacobs with no immediate timeline for his return. Team Jacobs has not announced who will step in for Fry at upcoming events such as the Canada Cup and the National Grand Slam. From the Hack would like to wish Ryan Fry well and hope that he comes back better and stronger than ever before. As mentioned, there was both a men's and women's event at the Red Deer Classic. In the men's event, Cody Hartung and his team from Saskatoon defeated Team Botcher of Edmonton 7-6 in the final to win the title, while in the women's event, it was Robin Silvernagel and her team from Saskatchewan defeating teammate of China 8-5. Robin Silvernagel joined from the hack to discuss her team's win in Red Deer. Robin, the final in Red Deer seemed to be a back-and-forth affair until the very end when you scored two in the seventh to take a one-point lead and then stole two in the eighth for the 8-5 to win. Was it one of those games where one or two shots here and there is what made the difference for your team? Yeah, we just didn't come out all the cylinders firing, I would say, the first couple ends. And it was really just one or two shots. It's not like there was any bad misses or big mistakes or anything, but we just weren't quite as sharp, and then we definitely picked it up in the last half and really got those two points when we needed. Like, that was a huge, huge two points, and we never gave up. We were down two at one point, and we're like, you know what? It's down two. It's fine. Uh, Let's just get our two points back and force them and just feel in control again, and that's what we did. Obviously, the event in Red Deer was overshadowed by the disqualification of a team and it made international headlines. When that kind of stuff is going on, especially the parts of the incident that took place on the ice, did it become difficult to focus on the games that had to be played, which would be unfortunate for teams because there was money and important points at stake for the teams in Red Deer? Yeah, uh, it definitely, I would say, affected us. Like, they seemed to be playing the same time we were playing, so uh, they were being quite obnoxious out there so that is definitely a distraction but uh, we took that and we're like you know what we're going to have distractions everywhere we need to know how to deal with this and just keep playing our game and focus on our game and not let that bother us and so we just kind of put it behind us and we're able to still play I know there was one game where I felt extremely distracted and was getting a little upset but I just kind of step back and I was like you know what you can't do anything about it just keep playing your game that's what you have to focus on because it is our points and our money and we can only control us not them so I felt that my team did a really good job of just kind of putting that to the side it's whatever they're putting the attention on them let's just do us and do what we came here to do so I felt we did a good job of managing it because there was definitely a lot of buzz and a lot of talk about it and finally, Robin, a lot has been made so far this season about uh, Kerry Anderson's quote-unquote skip team, but you almost have a skip team of your own with Steph Lawton at third and Jesse Hunkin at second. Did you have any apprehension of bringing two experienced skips onto your team? I mean, obviously you've played well, but I'm wondering how your progression is going as a team and whether you're ahead of where you thought you'd be at this point in your first season together. When we first got together, um, I mean, it just kind of happened, our team. Um and we had played with Jesse actually last year in Lloyd and knew she was a great shooter and I was still skipping so knew that she could sweep and we were really interested in having her on the team and then um, just have always looked up to Steph. She's a great shooter who seems like a very calm person, which she is. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know her that well before this year. 
um, and has a ton of experience and just thought it would be really great to bring her on just to see if she would be willing to play third because I knew I still wanted to skip. Um, and she's like, yep, I will play third for you. So I was like, all right, let's run this team. And we did, and yeah, it's, we've had a decent season. Um, we started off good and then I think went through a little valley, which is just growing pains, trying to learn each other, our tendencies, and we all were just tweaking and just gelling. You know, it's a new team, so it takes time to to uh, form and kind of get into your groove. Um, so, yeah, I feel like we're starting to peak kind of right at the proper time, and we've put in a lot of hard work uh, on and off the ice within, you know, mental toughness and also technical and tactical things. We've been working really, really hard and feeling like that's really paying off and that we're really starting to gel and things are coming together nicely. And meanwhile, at the Stu Cells 1824 Halifax Classic, Team Howard defeated Team Gushu 8-4 to to win the title. With Glenn Howard at the European Championships in his role as coach of Scotland's Eve Muirhead, Team Howard was skipped by Glenn's son Scott, who was skipping in his first ever event on the World Curling Tour. Scott joined from the hack to discuss his team's victory in Halifax. Scott, I did a little bit of research, and the Stu Cells event in Halifax on the weekend was the first time you skipped a team at a World Curling Tour event. What were the expectations for you and the guys heading into Halifax, playing without your regular skip, of course, who was in Estonia coaching Eve Muirhead's team at the European Championships? Yeah, actually, I've never thought of that, but I think you are correct. I don't think I've ever skipped uh, an event on the World Curling Tour. So, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience, and, uh, yeah, it was weird. It's, uh, I didn't know, really know what to expect, to be honest. Um, uh, I haven't skipped... Uh, competitively since junior so that would have been uh, 10 12 years ago so uh it was yeah pretty cool uh like i said i didn't really know what to expect and uh yeah came out and started making a lot of shots and next thing you know we were uh three and oh and then we made the playoffs and we just kept it rolling so yeah, it was a pretty cool experience and uh pretty happy of the way i played at skip position so you reached the final in Halifax where the opposition was the two-time reigning Briar Champs Team Gushu. I was going to ask you if you were nervous heading into your first final as a skip playing against Team Gushu, but I'm wondering if you were able to take a I've-got-nothing-to-lose approach that would have allowed you to play more freely. Honestly, Frank, um, yeah, I wasn't nervous at all, to be honest. Uh, things were going so well all week. Uh, the ice was fantastic, so I was pretty confident where to put the broom and uh, what kind of weight to throw, so... I had a lot of confidence going into that game, and uh, actually the draw of the button, I put it on the bit button twice, so um, I just, yeah, had, things were going well, and I had a lot of confidence, but uh, I was a little nervous, to be honest, in the very first game, in the first uh, end of the tournament, but uh, after that, uh, things went well, and uh, yeah, I came out uh, shooting all weekend. In the third end of the final, you made the type of shot your dad has made on more than a few occasions in big games and in big moments, and that was a triple takeout for six. I'm curious to know if it was a case where if you tried the double, the triple was almost automatic, or was making the triple for six a nice bonus that you may have not seen while you were in the hack? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a bizarre end. Uh, I don't think one team felt comfortable the whole end. We just uh, we kept freezing in there, and we just uh, we weren't sure who had the better angles, and then Gushu uh, he, he elected to play a, a high-hard one, and uh, we were pretty lucky enough that uh, all the yellow stayed, and his reds rolled to a, a spot where I could remove them. And, yeah, once uh, once I lined it up, I thought it was going to – I was going to play the thin double to stick it, and I think it was going to be for five. But then uh, if I hit it perfect, I think we were going to get the back one, and turns out uh, I hit it right where I was supposed to hit it. So, yeah, it was cool. Taking a little six-ender. Now, stepping in for a skip as talented as Glenn Howard is never easy, but you did have super spare Adam Spencer step in for you at third. How nice was it to have someone so solid and seemingly so calm backing you up in your first event as a skip? 
Yeah, you, Frank, you hit it right on the nail there. He is uh, one of the most friendly and most positive competitive curlers that I've ever curled with, to be honest. And he uh, he's one of those guys that can uh, go out and he's gonna he's gonna curl 90% almost every game. So he's uh, he's been solid player, and we've have a lucky enough chance to curl with him for the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, he's just a calm guy, and he's uh, very relaxing, and he's just a fun guy to be around, to be honest. And uh, he curls he curls like I said 90% almost all the time. So kind of takes a little bit of pressure off the skip because he's I get to throw a little a couple more easy ones but I guess uh yeah it's been uh it's been great having him on the team and just uh we clicked and we uh things went well last week and finally Scott did you get a chance to chat with your dad after the victory and what did he have to say to you and the boys yeah we uh like you know he's probably in, he's in Estonia right now coaching uh Muirhead's team at the Europeans but uh he congratulated us after the game and uh wondering how we were playing and he uh he's super proud dad he he, that's what he said to us, and uh, yeah, I think he tweeted on uh, his Twitter account there that uh, he's found his new role on the team, and that's the fifth man or the coach, uh, so uh, it was pretty funny. We all chuckled about it, and uh, yeah, uh, looking forward to getting back to playing third, because uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Hopefully, uh, we can do some damage on the tour this year. The America's Challenge also took place on the weekend with the U.S., Brazil, and Guyana battling to join Canada as representatives of the Americas region at the 2019 Men's World Championships. The U.S., represented by reigning U.S. champions Rich Runin and his team, won the double round robin with a record of 4-0, followed by Guyana at 2-2 and Brazil at 0-4. The team that will represent the U.S. at the 2019 Men's Worlds will be decided at the U.S. Nationals early in the new year. There were also a couple of mixed doubles events on the weekend in Bern, Switzerland. The team of Marlene Albrecht of Switzerland and Matt Wozniak of Canada defeated reigning world champions and Olympic silver medalists Jenny Perrette and Martin Rios by a score of 5-4 in the final. Meanwhile, the Canadiens mixed doubles classic in Portage saw the reunion of Olympic champions Caitlin Laws and John Morris, who certainly didn't disappoint, going undefeated, including a 9-4 win over Kadriana Sahedek and Colton Lott in the final. John Morris joined from the hack to discuss the Canadiens classic, upcoming events he'll be involved in, and in light of recent events, I also asked John about the expectations and responsibilities that come with being an Olympic champion. John, tell me about the final at the Canadiens Mixed Doubles Classic on the weekend. The first half of the game was uh, back and forth, but you seemed to take control in the second half. Did you and Caitlin change uh, strategy in the second half, or was it simply a case of your team making more shots than they did? Uh, you know what? I think that uh, we just kept applying some good pressure, and, and finally, uh, you know, those young guys were just making everything for the first four ends, and we finally got a, a, the odd miss out of them, and I think that's kind of what turned, uh, turned the tides for us. Can you tell me a little bit about this young team of Colton Lott and Kadriana Sahedek that you played in the final? Younger players that most casual curling fans may not know, but they seem to have the mixed doubles things figured out, having reached the final of the Canadian Nationals last spring and now reaching the final at the Canadiens Mixed Doubles Classic. Well, I'll tell you what, it's really great to see these young teams uh, playing mixed doubles and really really doing well in it. Uh, I think that mixed doubles itself is a, is a great sport for, for young, younger curlers. Uh, just because there's so much involved, um, and uh, you know, I think that it, you know they're they were they're a fantastic team. They have uh, all the shots in their arsenal. Uh, obviously, with their uh, uh, you know with their with their age, they're great sweepers and they're uh, very you know have lots of energy out there. And and uh, they had a great event. I think that um, you know them and also the other team that was in the the semi, the young team Groff and Doring, uh, had a really good event. And and I just I, it's just really nice to see that. There's some good young curlers that are taking up the sport of mixed doubles and really having fun at it. I'm guessing you and Caitlin had not played much together, if at all, since the Olympics. How long did it take the two of you to find your groove on the weekend? 
you know what, we uh, we hadn't thrown one rock since the Olympics together. <laughs> and that's kind of just how we roll, you know. I, she's got faith in me to, to prepare and do what I need to do to to um, to be ready for a big event. And, and the same thing with myself with her. She's... Uh, She's a very, uh, she's a, uh, a wonderful uh, a curler and a professional at it, and and she's uh, done, you know, the fact that she's playing with Jennifer Jones on tour really uh, had her night very sharp. She was in mid-season form, and uh, it was my second event. I actually played in the previous event uh, a few weeks ago, which kind of helped uh, me shake off some of the, the rust from the off-season, but uh, it was just like, I find with Caitlin, the more we play together, the better we get, and, and uh, it felt just like it had at the Olympics. Uh, it might it might have taken us a few ends. The first game we got down five to two after three ends, but um, you know after we uh, you know we got half a game in there, and we just it was just like uh, um, like going back to the Olympics, and and that's one thing that we really got going strong for us is we we just work really well together. We got great communication, and and we got faith in each other that uh, we're going to be ready to play, and it, uh, it boded well for us uh, so far. In your next event, you and Caitlin will not be able to play together because she will be busy with Team Jones at the Canada Cup while you're at the Curling World Cup in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, you'll team up there with former Canadian mixed doubles champ Caitlin Park, who is one of the more experienced Canadian curlers in mixed doubles, having won a Canadian championship a few years ago. I uh, know, you know, I'm, I'm uh, as much as I'd love to play with with, uh, with Caitlin because she's, she's such a fantastic partner. Uh, she's got a very busy women's schedule and I uh, respect that and um, so yeah, I, I found myself a great there, uh, substitute with Kaylin Park. She's actually been uh, playing uh, lots of uh, mixed doubles over the last five years. She's really uh, taken to it and kind of uh, only played mixed doubles, which is nice. She really knows the sport very well, and she's a great shooter. Uh, she she can make a lot of shots, and I I feel very confident uh, in having her as a as a spare. Um, and it's a huge event, you know. It's a uh, it's a uh, this new World Cup series is pretty much one of the marquee events in curling now, and uh, and 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 you know doing well in this second leg and having the chance to qualify for the finals in Beijing, where there's so much, so many uh, big things up for grabs, uh, would be quite amazing. So, really looking forward to it. It's great to see, um, you know, that uh, there's going to be a, a really marquee curling event in the United States, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to to playing uh, with Kaylin Park in that one. I also wanted to ask you about the mixed doubles event you will be hosting early uh, next year. Uh, can you share some details about the event, where it's being hosted, and perhaps some of the teams that have committed to play so far? We really wanted to, to uh, you know, the year after the Olympics, there's, there's still a lot of Olympic buzz going, going on, going on. And we really wanted to keep that momentum going, and um, so uh, and we're going to we're, we've created a new event here, a new World Curling Tour mixed doubles event, and it's uh, being held in both Banff and Canmore. Uh, and uh, we're pretty much bringing world-class curlers to uh, to the Rocky Mountains. Uh, we have a wonderful sponsor on board with Qualico. They've been a big, a big uh, curling supporter over the last uh, five or six years, and they've uh, come on, um, you know, in full support of this event, which is great because it wouldn't have been able to, to happen without them. And, uh, yeah, essentially we're bringing some – all your marquee names in curling are coming here. We have the Olympic gold, silver, and bronze medalists here. And there's about ten countries represented at it. Um, and it's going to be some fantastic curling. And uh, the other the other cool thing about it is we didn't want to just have it exclusive to your elite curlers in the world. We've also opened it up to uh, make sure we help grow the sport at the grassroots level in, in the Bull Valley here in Camor and Banff. So we've opened it up to uh, to locals, and we've got some great local representation from, from Banff and Canmore and uh, Cochrane going to be uh, playing in it, and they're really excited 
had a chance to, to help uh, develop their skills in mixed doubles, but also have a chance to play against their favorite curvers that they've, that they've cheered for on TV for, for so many years. So it's just uh, going to be a really awesome environment. Uh, it's uh, it's all pretty much full right now. We have a, a full field of 36 teams, uh, which is going to create uh, just a lot of fantastic curling. Uh, and I think we're going to we're working really hard to to ha have it streamed on uh, on cbc.ca, uh, get some live streaming to really help with the exposure of it. So um, it's been uh, you know it couldn't have been a better experience so far. I'm now 100% confident in, in uh, that this is going to be a home run of an event, and we're going to we're going to nail it out of the park. And um, you know it's just uh, going to be hopefully this is the first year of many many years and a great tradition uh, for the Qualical Mixed Doubles Classic here in the Rocky Mountains. And John, by now you've no doubt heard of the incident that took place in the Red Deer on the weekend. The reality is that when an Olympic gold medalist is involved in an incident like that, it's going to make news and probably get a lot more attention than many would anticipate. As a two-time Olympic gold medalist, do you find yourself being more mindful, especially in this age of social media, about what you say and do while out in public, whether it be at a curling club or another public place, understanding that if you're to say or do something out of the ordinary, if I can put it that way, it would generate some bad publicity for you, your family, sponsors, and teammates. Yeah, you betcha. I think that, you know, I feel so honored and, and grateful for having the opportunity to go to two Olympics and come home with two gold medals. And um, but, but with that comes some responsibility. And I, I find that you have to, uh, you know, you have to be, you know, be mindful of that uh, whenever you're out, especially whenever you're out in public, because you're associated with that, and, and it brings a lot of great opportunity, but it also sometimes can 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 burn you if uh, you know if you're um, you know doing doing something in public that might be deemed inappropriate in other people's people's eyes, especially because you're you know you're a role model for so many people now that uh, you've been able to follow your dreams and win an Olympic gold, and and um, first of all, I think that whole I can't believe how viral it's gone. It's obviously been a little bit more received, a bit too much attention, and uh, and been a little bit blown out of proportion. If I was to uh, to tag it properly, um, you know, I, I know uh, I know all those guys uh, that were involved, and I know that for the most part, they're they're all good people. Uh, you know, they like to have a good time, and and sometimes uh, maybe overindulge a little bit. But I know that they, uh, you know, they wouldn't want to personally harm anyone, and and I think that. Um, I think that uh, you know you do have a, a responsibility when you're uh, once when you've won a gold medal that you're you know you've uh, we're lucky we get great sponsors in in this in this uh, you know and they allow us to curl and they allow us to do what we, we love and and uh, you you have to always know that you're uh, you're representing uh, you know that that's your brand and you're representing those sponsors almost at all times and and you can pick your spots like uh, there's a reason I go fishing with my really good buddies on. On, in cabins that are in the middle of nowhere because I know that we're not, you know, like uh, sometimes if we have a few too many drinks, it's not going to be shared all over social media and it's with our people that we trust and and we're also not, you know. So I think that you just have to pick your spots and make sure that you're 100% comfortable in where you're doing that if you're going to do that. And, um, and it, uh, you know, it's unfortunate this, uh, you know, how much attention uh, Ryan's got. I know, I know Ryan uh, quite well. He's a good fella and I know that... Uh, and, you know, he never, you know, meant any harm in this. And uh, it's just quite unfortunate that it's been, it's been blown out of proportion like it has. And finally, John, on a lighter yet more important note, most people in our audience will know that you became a father for the first time earlier this year. How has life as a dad been treating John Morris? Well, I feel like the luckiest guy on the planet. I've, uh, you know, won another, had a great year, uh, you know, uh, 
within other Olympics and, and also, but more importantly, um, you know, I've put so much attention and, and, uh, and effort and commitment into curling for most of my life. Uh, I'm just now realizing how many other great things there are in life, and, and uh, one of them being uh, being able to have a family, and, and uh, I have, I'm truly lucky to have a very understanding and beautiful wife uh, uh, in Maggie, and, and we have a, a wonderful newborn uh, boy, baby boy, uh, Jack, and and it's just been, it's brought so much joy to our lives. And, and um, yeah, I never, you never really know until you're in that situation as a father uh, how it's going to be. But it sure has been, uh, uh, been such a great addition to, to my life. And, and uh, I couldn't feel like, uh, I, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy on earth and, and um, you know, have so many great things to look forward to. To be perfectly honest, after last season's Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship, many in the curling community were left to wonder who the heck is Kadriana Sahedek, a young player most people had never heard of and who has now reached the final of two major Mixed Doubles events in a row. So I figured the best way to get to know more about Kadriana was to have her as a guest on the podcast. Kadriana, I think the first question many people had last spring when you and your partner Colton Watt made it to the final of the Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship, and the question people still have now that you followed that up with a finals appearance at the Canadians in Portage on the weekend is who is Kadriana Sahidek and how did she get so good at Mixed Doubles? <laughs> well, um, good question. Well, it was kind of just started out as um, Colton and I, we were just friends and he uh, messaged me on Facebook or whatever and asking me if I wanted to curl in this mixed doubles league in our um, uh, one of our hometown curling rinks here in Winnipeg Beach. Uh, kind of just mentioning, um, oh, you want to curl in this mixed doubles? It's a different, totally different game. Like, I'll help you. I kind of know a bit about it. I'll kind of help you get a- along. So it kind of just started as a league sport for us. And so we played it for about, um, it should be about three years now. And it's kind of just kind of progressively from there and he just asked me if I wanted to go in the match for provincials. So it kind of just uh, pr- progressed by just a league game for us. So in other words, you may be new to us, but you've been playing mixed doubles together for a while now, which might be an advantage considering so many teams seem to get together a few weeks or even days before a mixed doubles event and don't really know each other's tendencies, strengths, weaknesses, and have to learn them on the fly during the actual event. Yeah, and as we've kind of been going at it for a bit now, um, but obviously just keep progressing in it, which we are. You and Colton uh, took the scenic route uh, to the playoffs at the Canadians Mixed Doubles Classic, qualifying through the seaside. Did the two of you change something in your strategy after your B-side loss to Peterman and Thomas, or did you simply get in the groove starting in the C-final against Chelsea Carey and Colin Hodgson? No, it was kind of um, show up at every uh, every practice and say to, say to each other, um, just keep playing like we do, which... Um, which helps a lot, just kind of set up those rocks uh, above the house and just keep playing like we always do. In the quarterfinal, you played against the reigning Canadian mixed doubles champs Laura Walker and Kirk Myers, who defeated you in the Canadian final last spring. Were you a little extra pumped to play and win that game after losing to them in the final at Canadians last spring? Uh, Yes, (laughs) very much so. Um, We were both eager. Um, We both wanted to um, prove ourselves that we are capable of beating a team that has already beaten us. In the final, you played against the Olympic champions, Caitlin Laws and John Morris. Uh, did you have to take a deep breath at the start of the game, or are you at the point now where you're used to playing against some of the top players in the world and aren't phased by who you play anymore? 
we kind of were both like, oh, we're playing, you know, the the big guys, the Olympic champs. But I think um, playing the mixed doubles game and curling, I think anybody is beatable, uh, which we did. We had a very close game, and then that kind of that fifth end kind of lost us. But we knew going into this these type of events that anyone is beatable. And finally, Kadriana, what makes you and Colton Lott such a good mixed doubles team? I don't know. Maybe it's uh, good chemistry. <laughs> um, no, we're very uh, comfortable with each other. Um, like you said, every lots of teams are just thrown together. But us, we've been playing at it for a while, and obviously we're more comfortable with each other, know how we throw rocks, know how, how we release the rock, how we communicate with each other, kind of just progressively getting better every game we play. In other curling news this past week, the World Curling Tour announced the formation of the World Curling Tour Japan Division. Jerry Gertz of the World Curling Tour joined from the hack for a brief interview to discuss this new branch of the World Curling Tour in a growing curling market. Jerry, the World Curling Tour recently announced the formation of a Japanese division. Can you tell me what that means for Japanese teams and perhaps for North American teams looking to travel to Japan to compete? So yeah, the the growth of curling in Japan is is exploding there as well. They've had a resurgence of of interest due to uh, Satsuki Fujisawa's uh, bronze medal. So uh, you know they're getting a lot of that same kind of stuff going on as you would you know as as is happening in the United States. The curlers on the team are are superstars, and uh, you know it's really interesting to see how the sport is taking off there. And then at the same time, there's quite a bit of participation already in the sport, too. So, you know, quite a few teams that uh, go out and, and play uh, bond fields and tournaments and, and even uh, more competitive events to agree. We've, we've had kind of a smaller circuit of events going on in Japan the last couple of years. And, uh, of course, there's the Kirazawa event, which has long been the uh, cornerstone of, of uh tour curling in Japan. It was a legacy event from the 1998 Olympics. And then uh, up in uh, North Island in Hokkaido, we've got the Dojin Classic uh, in uh, August, uh, the title sponsor of Hokkaido Bank. And, and uh, you know, there's, a, there's definitely some significant opportunity to grow there as we've got some TV interest at the same time, too. Is one of the objectives for this new division to create events that might draw some of the top international teams so that Japanese teams get an opportunity to compete against them and learn from the top teams, or is the main focus to create what is essentially a regional tour where Japanese teams can gain experience playing each other while also earning World Curling Tour points? This is the opportunity, I think, uh, uh, as much about growing uh, domestic curling in Japan. You know, this is where we see the real significant opportunity here to to give teams that are playing currently, you know, a little bit of that ladder to climb, you know, earn some points and climb up the order of merit ranking and then, and in turn make the events more valuable at the end of the day. You know, these are very good teams playing there as well, and, you know, they deserve to be on the ranking, but they need some events at home to make that possible. Then what happens is is when Kirazawa runs or, or some of the events, uh, uh, the bigger events run, you know, their points value will be higher and it'll be more enticing for a Canadian team or European team to to make that trip to Asia. So, you know, it just increases the general value and opportunity for teams to uh, to participate. And, you know, it's, it's sort of organically growing that. So that's where we're at. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline Curling. For those who play with the ice pad, they know it's the best curling brush. 
whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist Team Schuster or women's Olympic gold medalist Sweden's Team Hasselberg and their countrymen Team Adine, or how about the top Canadian teams Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Kerry Anderson, and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless. And Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. Before moving on to our final guest of the week, I wanted to remind you that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network, along with the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those two podcasts yet, you should really check them out. And finally this week, many of you know Don Landry through his excellent coverage of curling both as a writer and through his play-by-play work at Provincial Playdowns and now at Curling World Cup events. As you may or may not know, one of Don's other passions is the Canadian Football League, a league he covers in-depth for the website cfl.ca. With the Great Cup just a few days away, Don joined me for my other podcast, The Canadian Sports Story, and I thought I would share our conversation on From the Hack also, in part because I know many curling fans also follow the Canadian Football League. Now let's start by looking back at last weekend's division finals. Uh, Ottawa seemed to get off to a bit of a slow start versus Hamilton, who were coming off a big win over the BC Lions in the Eastern semifinal, but then started taking control of the game in the second quarter on the way to a 46-27 win. Did the game play out as you expected, or were you surprised at how Ottawa was able to take control? No, I don't think it really followed exactly the way uh, I thought it would uh, pan out. In fact, I, I, I thought it was a pick game, and I think a lot of people who follow the CFL closely figured that too. Despite the fact Ottawa had beaten Hamilton three times during the regular season, they were all close games. Hamilton has had this infuriating uh, habit uh, during the season of being world beaters and then being chumps. I'll tell you the truth, Ottawa has as well. But they beat British Columbia so handily the week before. I think we all thought this Ticats team is really together, and we're not exactly sure what Ottawa is going to bring. So my own personal view was, this could go either way. So I was a little surprised, not that Ottawa won, but that they did it so handily. Winnipeg arrived in Calgary for the Western final, fresh off of a emotional victory over Saskatchewan in the Western semifinal. Were you surprised that Calgary was not able to take control of the game early, especially since they were the more rested team, or did the momentum Winnipeg brought into the game allow them to keep it close early as they worked themselves into what turned out to be a relatively tight 22-14 game? Two cup, uh, very evenly matched teams, and um, when Winnipeg forced a turnover quickly to begin the second half, I wondered if that might not be the place where they turned it around. They didn't capitalize on that, and although their defense kept Calgary at bay until deep into the fourth quarter, their offense, Winnipeg, just couldn't get anything going. So I wasn't sure coming down the stretch. It was still a close game, and it was anybody's ball game. I I thought one of these offenses is going to just open the jar a little bit, you know, just crack the lid a little, and that's all it's going to take. Turned out it was Calgary, whose defense played spectacularly all afternoon long. So did Winnipeg's, but it was Calgary's offense that just got the little edge at the right time, and... You know, timing is everything. They get a, they get the win and they get to the Grey Cup again. 
The Calgary Stampeders have been one of the more dominant CFL franchises in recent years. In fact, they'll be playing in their third consecutive Grey Cup on the weekend in Edmonton. However, they ended the season losing three of their final four regulation games, and extended losing streaks aren't something the Stamps are that familiar with. Are we perhaps seeing a Calgary team on the last legs of this recent stretch of dominance, and do you expect them to make changes to their team in the offseason in the hope of reloading, as it were? Yeah, I think that they might have to anyway. Um, there's a complicated situation coming up with the Canadian Football League this offseason. Um, first and foremost, lots of free agents every year for every team, and Calgary's included. Secondly, there's a collective bargaining agreement, an impasse right now. That has to be negotiated, so there'll be some changes to the salary cap and things like that that people just don't know about, and so uh, it's going to be a strange offseason. But this is a Calgary team that has been by far and away the best team in the Canadian Football League for the last uh, half decade to decade. They've been the gold standard. They've just fallen short of the Grey Cup. But this this is different. The, the two years they lost the Grey Cup last year in Toronto, the year before to Ottawa, they cruised through the regular season, no problems, rested some of their players toward the end of the season, and they weren't battle-tested for the, the Grey Cup, even though... They came through the Western Final each year. This year, because of those three losses you talked about, they had a must-win game in their last regular season game, and they won it impressively. They won the West Final impressively. They've overcome so many injuries through their all-star receivers. So much uh, is different with Calgary. I think they're more ready to contest this Grey Cup than they have been in the last couple of years. It might sound odd to say that, uh, but I think that's the case. Don, seven of the nine CFL franchises have won a Grey Cup in this decade, which says a lot about the parity in the league. However, many would argue that having a dominant team is good for a league because people are drawn to dominant teams, whether it's to cheer them or to cheer against them. Do you think the CFL might benefit from having a dominant team for a stretch, the way the Edmonton Eskimos were back in the late 70s and early 80s when the Eskies won five Grey Cups in a row? I have a beholder, I think, Frank, and, uh, and I think you know, despite falling short the last couple of years, the Calgary Stampeders are that team. Their coach, Dave Dickinson, talked about it yesterday after the game. Their quarterback, Bo Levi Mitchell, said, you know, I understand people want change. They don't want us to be there, but you ain't getting what you want. And Dave Dickinson's even a little more forthright in saying that most of Canada roots against the Stampeders. They don't get the credit that's due to them. And I think that's a bit of an overreaction on his part, but I, I do think, uh, there might have been a, there might be a certain uh, faction of football fans, a big one, that goes, oh, that's enough of Calgary. I, you know, I was, uh, I loved them for a while, but now I'm just getting a little tired of them. So uh, they might be that team. But to, to get back to the parity question, I, I think you hit on a, a few of those things. I, I definitely think the free agency situation is one of them. But I also know that you know we wouldn't have had uh, the Argos in Ottawa winning in the last couple of years if Calgary did what they were supposed to do. Those two Grey Cup championships were authored by teams that played great football at the right time of the year, but also because Canada or, or because Calgary, um, and specifically their quarterback, Levi Mitchell, uh, threw you know interceptions at bad times during these games. There are other reasons as well, but that's also part of the reason why you haven't had the Calgary Stampeders be the dominant team. But they should have won three of the last four Grey Cups. Uh, and, and so then we'd be talking about that instead, wouldn't we? So one last question about the Grey Cup, and I'm not going to ask you to pick a winner between Calgary and Ottawa, but what type of game do you expect from the two teams, especially in Edmonton, where weather might be a factor, right? 
Not so far. The weather seems to be okay. I mean, it'll be it'll be a little bit wintry temperature-wise. I think, and they're predicting in the minus five to minus ten range somewhere in there. But so far, it's not supposed to be anything significant when it comes to snow or wind or anything. But you know, that can change as we get closer to the game. This will be a good game. Uh, the Ottawa Red Blacks uh, don't have the same resume as the Calgary Stampeders for this season, um, but they're a very good team, and they showed they can really be disciplined in that win over Hamilton. They, they're good everywhere. They're good on offense. They're good on defense. They're good on special teams. And guess what? So are the Calgary Stampeders. This is going to be a difficult game. But there's something to be said, perhaps, in the world of sport, maybe in anything in life, when you've got something to prove and you've got a bad taste in your mouth because you feel you blew it the, the two years previous. That's a little extra something, I think, for the Calgary Stampeders. Maybe that'll be the edge that gets them over the hump this time. But, yeah, I'm glad you're not making me make a prediction because uh, I, I don't know which way this is going to go. And anyone who says they know for certain, uh, I don't know. I think they're, they're bragging um, and, and shouldn't be talking about uh, the game this way, uh, you know, bragging about their ability to predict things because um, both of these teams are very capable. All right, so let's take a few minutes to talk about some of the non-Grey Cup-related CFL stories making the news lately. Starting with Wally Buono coaching his last football game when his BC Lions were defeated by the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the Eastern Semifinal. Now, obviously, it's unfortunate that his career had to end with such a disappointing and lopsided loss, but can you talk about Wally Buono, the man who seemed to be one of the more respected people in the CFL for a very long time? Losing against Hamilton in that semi, yeah, the way the BC line did was certainly not the script Wally Bono would have wanted. And most observers, other than Ticat fans, of course, but uh, Wally's beloved almost universally. Uh, he certainly loved in Calgary where he began his coaching career and won a couple of great cups there, and he's loved in BC because he did the same kind of thing. He's the all-time winningest coach in CFL history. And I just, I, he's got a sterling reputation within the CFL and a sterling reputation without. I, he, he, people just love Wally Buono, um, and he's earned it. He's always been the kind of guy who will tell it like it is when his team wins, but more importantly, he tell it like it is when his team loses. And he, he's been a guy who's helped build the Canadian Football League over the years, uh, one of the great builders of the game, uh, brought in a lot of quarterbacks that went on to start, not just in the CFL, but some of them in the NFL, as well. They call it a coaching tree. You know, the branches off from Wally, the assistants that he's brought in, that he's helped to train as coaches, and, and they've gone in different directions. Dave Dickinson, the head coach of the Calgary Stampeders, is one of them. But on and on it goes. You've got all these great coaches in the CFL, and they once studied underneath head coach Wally Buono. Uh, he's, uh, he's a terrific gentleman, wonderful guy. Uh, sad to see him go. I think most CFL fans are. So I have to ask you about Johnny Manziel, who came to the CFL with a lot of buzz, got traded from Hamilton to Montreal, and then once in Montreal had to deal with injuries, and then was never really able to lock up the starting quarterback job. Do you think the Johnny Manziel experiment is a failed one in the CFL, or do you believe he might still be able to develop into a solid CFL quarterback? You know, the Johnny Manziel story is an interesting one, and it's a, it's a complicated one, too. So far as we know, he, he'll be back with Montreal for uh, the 2019 season. I believe he said that, indicated that he would do that. Uh, he's still got a lot to prove. Uh, those who expected Johnny Manziel to step into the Canadian Football League and just dominate don't really know much about the Canadian Football League or 
you know, just haven't been paying attention to history because um, although there have been some players who've come in and starred almost immediately in the CFL, as they do in the NFL sometimes, um, a lot of these highly touted stars come to Canada and they take a while before they can really get in gear. Doug Flutie's first season, the first half of his season, almost the full season, he wasn't really anything that great. He was better than Manziel, but... But again, so I, I think people make the mistake of, of thinking that the gulf between the CFL and the NFL talent-wise is the same as the gulf between the CFL and the NFL salary-wise, and that's just not the case. They're much closer in talent. And Mantel found that out, and uh, he continues to. Uh, it's complicated in that he was on a team that had a terrible offensive line, worst in the Canadian Football League, and he didn't really have a lot of time when the ball was snapped to him to make decisions. So the jury's a little bit out on Johnny Manziel. Uh, he'll be back next year. We expect him to, as I said. He'll try and prove a little bit more. Montreal will try to have a better offensive line, but he's got some competition. They signed a bunch of other quarterbacks that they've had on their roster in 2018, including a guy by the name of Antonio Pipkin, who some think is better than Johnny Manziel. So we'll see how it plays out. Speaking of Manziel, the management of the Montreal Alouettes, including GM Cavis Reed and coach Mike Sherman, took some heat for the deal that got them Johnny Manziel, and also for a couple of deals that they made late in the season where they got rid of a couple of popular Canadian starters in return for draft picks that left their fan base frustrated. Are the Alouettes a team on the edge of being in real trouble, or do you think they have the assets necessary to rebound next season and perhaps challenge for a spot in the playoffs? Yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, the good news is, you know, uh, we've touched on it, you know, free agency, that kind of thing. It, you, you can build, you can get some stars, and you can turn things around pretty quickly if you do it right. Cavis Reed's tenure in the CFL has been up and down, you know. He's built some decent teams. He was a, a pretty good coach for a while, and then that stopped. He was a good player. Uh, so it's, uh, it's up and down, but his time in Montreal has been had more critics come out of the woodwork than people who want to throw rose petals at his feet. Uh, Mike Sherman, after all those years in the NFL, obviously a solid football guy, and I thought he adapted to the Canadian game pretty well as the season went on. I uh, I see, you know, no reason to let him go. So I think they made the right reason or the right choice there to to see if he can grow even more this off season and into his second season. So. And there's some good talent on the Alouette that they can keep some of it and, and augment through free agency. They could turn it around quickly. But, again, it's all going to come down to, uh, as it does always in the CFL, who's your quarterback and how good are they and how well do you protect them. It was also a disappointing season for the Toronto Argonauts who went from great cup champs to missing the playoffs and firing their coach all in less than 12 months. What does the immediate future look like for the Toronto Argos? A lot of work to be done with the Toronto Argonauts, and they are this, one of the surprises of the 2018 season in a bad way. They were expected to, after their Grey Cup championship last year, build on that, be a contender, and be, you know, the top team in the East if, you know, or close to it. And they fell so far short that they're one of the big surprises, certainly one of the biggest, if not the biggest, disappointments of the 2018 season. Some players who are aging, they had some injury troubles. Uh, obviously, with their quarterback, Ricky Ray, getting injured early, they never solved that problem. Do they have the right guy, a young guy by the name of James Franklin, to be their quarterback of the future, or do they not? That's a question they're going to have to answer. But 
they need a, a big overhaul in personnel to get competitive. They they fired their head coach immediately after the season, Mark Trestman. They need to obviously make a good hire there. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, a lot of work to be done with the Toronto Argonauts uh, going into next season. You wouldn't expect them to rebound super quickly, although that does happen from time to time. And uh, they did it in 2017 themselves. They came off a terrible 2016 and won the Grey Cup. So, again, you can turn it around quickly, but the short uh, the short strokes with the Argos is, yeah, lots of heavy lifting in the off season to get it done. One of the off-the-field stories that is getting a lot of attention lately is the renewed push to bring a CFL franchise to the Halifax area. Now, I know that there's been buzz in the past and a little has materialized, but are we legitimately close to perhaps seeing the CFL expand to Atlantic Canada? Well, they have chosen a, a place for a stadium uh, in Halifax. They don't have approval for it yet. They've you know, done a lot of a public outreach and uh, shaking of hands of council members and things like that. Uh, it's a good group behind the bid, we know that, but there are still a lot of rivers to cross to get this done. Having said that, during Grey Cup week, they will have their Grey Cup party. They'll host one, and at it, they are going to announce the name of the team or the would-be team. Uh, they're going to get that out of the way right away. Uh, a lot of people think it'll be the Atlantic Schooners which was the name that was proposed back in the early 80s when this idea was first floated of putting a team on the East Coast. So we'll see. Um, so they picked a place for a stadium. Can they get the financing? Uh, can they get everything else in order? That That's the key here. The CFL wants it. The commissioner, Randy Ambrosi, is in favor of it. Lots of fans would like to see it happen. But it's a complicated deal uh, with a lot of interests involved, so there's a lot of work to be done there, too. And finally, Don, I want to ask you about a piece you wrote for CFL.ca recently about Hamilton Tiger Cats all-star Don Unamba, a former Division II All-American in the States who had kind of given up on football, and it's a really nice comeback story. Can you share a little bit of the story of uh, Don Unamba with our audience? These are the kinds of stories that I really love to tell, and Don Unamba is... Um and he was forthright and very talkative about his situation. And I think we all love these stories of reclamation, right? He's a guy who tried it in the CFL for a while, couldn't make it, and then he ended up being a door-to-door salesman in Dallas for a while and thought, this is it. This is my future. I've got to come to terms with it. And he gets a call out of the blue from an Arena League team and says, yeah, maybe I'll try that out, puts together a tape. Um, Nick Lewis, the great veteran receiver with the Montreal Alouettes, who's now retired, sees the tape, knows that this guy went to the same school he did, and goes, you should be playing up here. And lo and behold, he gets signed by the Alouettes, doesn't make it there, but he signs with Hamilton, and a year later, he's an all-star. It's a great story. You go from my football life is over to being one of the best linebackers in the East. It's it's a wonderful story, again, and a good guy who told it well to me, and uh, I appreciated writing it. And that does it for the From the Hack podcast for week 14 of the 2018-2019 curling season. A big thank you to each of our guests and also to you for listening. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.